Happy Mother's Day to all of the mothers who are with us and participating today. Happy Mother's Day to my mom who isn't here with us. I think she may be online or she'll listen to the podcast tomorrow because she likes to listen to the podcast of her baby preaching every week. And I just love the last year of my mom's life, how the grace of God has sustained her through cancer, surgeries, chemo, uh, COVID that she had back in November, and to see the joy of God that is still in her. And mom, if you're listening and watching right now, I know we are not your church home, but this church has prayed over you like this is your church home. And we love you. So proud of you. For all the moms in the room today or listening who have survived a year of COVID and virtual teaching, you should not have to pay taxes for the next five years of your life. Uh, for all the people in the room and who are participating today who have become spiritual mothers to so many of us in this church and around this community, we thank you. And we also give voice today for the moms who are no longer with us, for the grief that comes into a day like this, for those who, who becoming a mother has not happened in your life. We give voice to all the emotions that come into this day, and we celebrate that uh, as we say Happy Mother's Day to those of you with us. We're in a series right now called Church Defined. Since Easter, we're in an eight-week series just talking about what it means to be the church. And we're taking Acts chapter 1 through Acts chapter 10, and we're just walking through what it was that defined who the church was years ago. So let me ask this question. Who does the church exist for? Who does the church exist for? Now, the church answer is Jesus, right? Uh, right? We all agree, like the church exists for God, for the glory of God, it, it's because of God, the mission of God, but does the church exist for members or outsiders, for those inside or those outside, for those who are saved or those who are lost, however you want to paint the categories, who does the church exist for? Because Jesus doesn't make the answer to that question very easy. Because there are times where Jesus says stuff like, love your neighbor as yourself. Like, love those who may be outside of your family, who may be outside of the church. Jesus talks about loving your enemy, and Jesus modeled that. And then Jesus also says stuff like, the world will know that you're my disciples by how you love one another. It's not how you love the world. It's going to let the world know how much you love me. It's how you love each other and get along with each other. This becomes a witness to the world. So we could set up two sides today of who the church exists for. Does the church exist for the family of God, or does the church exist for those outside the family of God and both sides could come up with their their argument and they have scripture and they have places where they can quote Jesus and then the early church at its healthiest the early church would look at that conversation they would say you can't have that conversation like it's not an either or the church exists for people to give value to all people so I think one day, if I bump, if I bump into uh, Luke, because Luke wrote Luke, and Luke wrote Acts in the Bible, and I were to ask him something like, hey man, did you know? Like, was it an intentional move that you did not use the word love in the book of Acts? It's the only book in the entire New Testament the word love doesn't show up. I think Luke would probably look at me and be like, man, I, I, I didn't know that. I must have missed out. I must have just thought that it was on every page. But then there may have been other intentional moves by Luke in the book of Acts. That the word Christian isn't used in the book of Acts until Acts chapter 11, until the church is a multicultural church. That the word church isn't used in the book of Acts until Acts chapter 5, when there's crisis within the church, a crisis of character, moral character, and uh, integrity is on the line. And then the word church is used in the story of Ananias and Sapphira that we looked at last week. 
that the church continued to grow. Even in the fear of God, the church was growing. And today, I want to talk about a story where the word disciple first shows up in the book of Acts. Because the word disciple doesn't show up in Acts chapter 2 or in Acts 3 through 5 as Peter and John are offering healings and there's teachings and the church has grown over 5,000 people. The word disciple isn't used until Acts chapter 6. So will you open your Bibles at Acts chapter 6 today? And as you're getting there, I just want to put an image up for you real quick. And maybe you've heard before of the waterline principle. It's basically this. If you're on a boat, you're on a ship. And there is a hole that is blown in the side of the ship. If that hole is blown above the water line, you have a chance to patch that hole and to just go about your business, go about life. You can keep sailing. If that hole is blown below the water line, what's going to happen? Yeah, you better panic. You got a crisis on your hands. Now, most of you could process different crises or crises in your life with the waterline principle. Some of you know what it's like to suffer, be dealt a blow that was above the waterline, like it made you wake up a little bit, but you were able to go about your life with with therapy or healing and recovery. And some of you know what it's like in your life to be dealt a blow that is below that waterline, and it was tragic, like so many things in your life changed. When it comes to the pandemic, the pandemic for some of you was like a hole was blown above the waterline, and you may have had to tweak a few things, and then for some of you, it's like that hole was blown below the waterline, and you had to change a lot of things and maybe there are people who are no longer here to even walk life with. And you can probably also think about church experience. In churches that you've been a part of, when there's been holes that have been blown above a waterline, and maybe it was theological shifts, maybe there were worship-style changes, and there were some tweaks that were made, and the mission of God just kept going. And then you can probably also think of holes that have been blown below that waterline. And I think specifically about when there are moral failures and character flaws within leadership, when there's an abuse of authority or an abuse that happens within the life of a church body below that waterline that can be detrimental to people's faith and to the life of that church. Because up until Acts chapter 6, in Acts chapter 4 and 5, most of what was happening to the followers of God and to the apostles, most of what was happening were threats from the outside. And they were dealing with them and they were rejoicing that they get to suffer in the name of Jesus. But in Acts chapter 6, there's a crisis on the inside. Like now it's something happening inside of the body of believers. And here's how the story goes. Acts chapter 6, the first seven verses, goes, it goes like this. And I want you to think about this story with this in mind. There's a problem. There's a plan, and there's prayer. Problem, plan, prayer. And here's how it goes. In those days, when the number of disciples was increasing, the Hellenistic Jews among them complained against the Hebraic Jews because their widows were being overlooked in the daily distribution of food. We got a problem. Verse 2, so the twelve gathered all the disciples together and said, it would not be right for us to neglect the ministry of the word, of God in order to wait on tables. Brothers and sisters, choose seven men from among you who are known to be full of the spirit and wisdom. We will turn this responsibility over to them and will give our attention to prayer and the ministry of the word. This proposal pleased the whole group. They chose Stephen, a man full of faith in the Holy Spirit. Also Philip, Procurus, Nicanor, Timon and Pumbaa, and Barmanus. Just making sure you're listening, all right? And Nicholas from Antioch, a convert to Judaism, they presented these men to the apostles who prayed and laid their hands on them. So the word of God spread. 
The number of disciples in Jerusalem increased greatly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. I want you to think just for a moment, and I know in this room we have football fans and we have people who can't stand football. I just want you to think for a moment. When it comes to a football player, I did a wedding for a Memphis Tiger this past Friday night. A college football player, so I was around a bunch of football guys. And when you play football, every time you step out on a field, whether it's practice or in a game, you're running the risk of there being injury, a career-threatening injury, something that happen, can happen to your head or your knee or your ankle. But over the last year, football players haven't just had to think about injuries on the outside, injuries that may happen to their body. There's been a pandemic that's been on the inside that they have, have had, to, had to face. And when it comes to the church, there, there's pressure and there are threats that can come from the outside. And then there can be crisis and crises in the inside. In Acts chapter 6, we got a problem. So let's move through this. There's a problem, there's a plan, there's prayer. And the problem is, in verse 1, that apparently there are some widows who were going hungry. There's growth that has happened in the church, and anytime there's growth, it can create challenges. When there's growth in a family, when some people go from having one child to two children, or three to four, or in the Hinkle's case, eight to 13, or however many Hinkle's there are in the world. Growth can create problems. Growth can create issues in a church. Growth can create issues in whatever organizations or businesses or schools you're a part of. When there's growth, it can create challenges. And when there are challenges, sometimes you need some structure and some administration and some thoughtful thinking of how you can create something to help this movement. So there's a problem. Because you have the Hellenistic Jews and you have Hebraic Jews and these widows are not being taken care of the same. Now, there are those who will say that the Hellenistic Jews were actually Greeks and Gentiles who became Jews. So you actually have a Jew-Gentile struggle that's happening in Acts chapter 6. And I don't think that's the case. I think what you had is you have Jews who were Hebrews who lived in Jerusalem. They had been in Jerusalem for hundreds of years since the people of God had came back from Babylon. So it was their home. Generation after generation have been there. And then you have the Hellenistic Jews who were Jews who were from the outside. But they were Jews, but they spoke Greek. And they probably followed some of their Greek cultures. So their language is different. They talk different. Some of them said pop. Some of them said soda. Like there were just different cultural issues going on. And now you have these Hellenistic Jews who are now in Jerusalem, either because they came to Pentecost, they experienced the power of God, the, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and now they're a part of this community. Whatever the issue is, we got an issue in chapter 6, verse 1. We got a problem because there are some widows who aren't being fed. They aren't being cared for. Now, it's interesting that it's not the widows who are complaining. It's the advocates of the widows who are the ones who are complaining. Now, if you're a widow in those days, usually your family would take care of you, whether you're a Jew or a Gentile. Families would take care of widows. So a couple of things must have happened for a lot of these widows who came from outside of Jerusalem. Either their baptism separated them from family, which happened a lot in the early church and it happens around the world today. F uh, baptism can mean separation and you can be severed from your family for life. And maybe there were some of these widows who now lived in Jerusalem. So everything they had owned and everything they had, they had left behind and now they're in Jerusalem. Whatever the issue is, you have a lot of these widows, Hellenistic widows, Jews who spoke Greek, who are now in Jerusalem. And here's what we know. We know that Jewish synagogues for hundreds of years 
cared for the poor and needy. We knew they took justice very seriously. We know this from history. We know this from the Old Testament. Synagogues took seriously what it meant to care for the orphan, the widow, and the foreigner. We know that for years, synagogues in all different communities, they had what we would call a soup kitchen, daily soup kitchens, to feed the hungry and to take care of the needy. We know this. And we also know that for the people of God, taking care of widows was how they lived out loyalty to their covenant to God. This wasn't just a side thing that they would occasionally do. Being in a covenant with God meant that you look out for the poor, the orphan, the widow, the stranger. We know that. So you got a problem. In verse 2, the apostles don't become defensive about the problem. Right? They address it. And the way the apostles do it is they say, All right, listen, people. We have the ministry of the word, we have preaching that needs to go on. And we need to be able to commit ourselves to the preaching of the word, to the authority of the teaching of Jesus, and to prayer. But we also need to be able to address this issue. The apostles don't create a hierarchy. They emphasize all of these things. And there are some who have interpreted Acts 6, especially Acts 6, verse 2 and 3, as if uh, the apostles are differentiating between spiritual food and physical food, and spiritual food is more important than physical food. I don't think that's what's happening here at all. I think the apostles are saying, hey, we have a problem on our hands that we need to address, but we cannot minimize preaching and teaching and evangelism and prayer in order to, to serve the widows and hungry bellies. And we can't elevate serving people and feeding the hungry and minimize preaching and prayer. We've got to elevate all of these things, and here's how we want to do it. They call together the whole church. Now, we know at this point there were 5,000 people in the church, and I, maybe they called together all 5,000 people. Maybe they found space to do it. Maybe they had representatives of the 5,000 who were there. They called together. It sounds like a number of people. And what the apostles do, and I love this, the apostles could have taken this on all by themselves and tried to solve this issue. But the apostles knew that the Holy Spirit wasn't just upon them. The Holy Spirit was upon the whole community. So now they're going to trust that the Holy Spirit's going to raise up leaders within the church to help them think through what needs to be done in this situation. I don't think in Acts chapter 6 the apostles are creating a universal structure for the church. The word deacon never shows up in Acts chapter 6. There are principles in Acts chapter 6. That when there's a crisis and when there's a need, here's how we're going to go after it. We're going to make sure that we prioritize things and core values and who we are so that some things aren't forgotten, so that we don't elevate service and neglect the word of God or prayer, but that we hold in place what it takes to be the church. And the apostles said, let's do this. Here's the only foundation the apostles gave them. They're going to let the church make decisions. But they said, I think we need seven men to do this. Seven men. Is the crisis so big that it's going to take seven men to solve this issue? Because there's some of you, do you not read this and think, hey, one single mom could have taken care of this issue in 30 minutes. One Chick-fil-A manager could have solved this whole issue. Let's give them an hour. They would have had two lines. It would have been smooth. They would have had it. They, they know what they're doing. Seven men and some argue that there were a lot of boards and committees and Judaism around those days that had seven people on it. Seven's a biblical number. I don't know why there's seven men. They said, hey, we just need seven men. 
And then it's like they gave a job description. They, they listed, here are a few characters that have to be in place. Good reputation, full of the Holy Spirit, full of wisdom. I mean, it, it almost sounds like it almost sounds like a job description for like a senior pastor or somebody, right? Like, I mean, this is, they're taking this really seriously. This isn't just a matter of having somebody who really cares about feeding the hungry. We need somebody who has a good reputation among people, somebody who is full of the Spirit of God, somebody who is full of wisdom. It's not just somebody who can do the task. So the church took that seriously. They took the job description, they took the three characters that the apostles had given them, and boom, they raise up seven men. And you're given their names. And what's so interesting about the names, all seven of them are Greek names. Now, it's very possible in those days that some people had a Jewish name and a Greek name, depending on where they were, it's a name they would go by. But it's interesting here, all seven had Greek names. And I think it's very possible that what the church did, what the Holy Spirit did in the church, is the Holy Spirit raised up leaders from within the oppressed group to be, in a, be a voice for the oppressed group. Isn't that a beautiful move of God? That it's not just that we're going to get people who've been in the, the synagogue system of Jerusalem for years to run this, but we're asking God to raise up people from those who have brought this issue to our attention, and we're asking God to raise up leaders, and it's exactly what happened. They did it. They had a strategy, there was structure, people were valued, the mission of God happened, the evangelistic fervor didn't shrink a bit. It's beautiful. And then they pray in verse six and seven, they're gonna pray. And, and the way they pray over this effort is they, they bring them before the apostles, the apostles lay hands on them, something they had seen Jesus do so many times, where now it's like authority has been transferred. And we don't get a read about how quickly the situation was taken care of or how the problem was fixed. All we know is that the seven, like a couple of end up, they, they become great evangelists. Stephen's going to die a few pages later because he's, he's a great preacher. So they end up doing other things outside of that effort, but there was a need and the church is going to do something about it. There was a problem. There was a plan. There was prayer. In the last few days in the life of this church, We've had a food pantry that has fed hungry people in our community. We've had a grocery giveaway that has fed hundreds of people in our community. We've offered vaccines yesterday, partnered to offer vaccines to people in our community. And here we are in a room, worshiping, sitting under the teaching of God, the teaching of Jesus, praying together, worshiping God together. And in the life of the church and in your life, you're going to be challenged throughout your life to sometimes choose. Are you going to allow your affections and your attention to go to teaching and prayer and the reading of the scripture, the reading of the word, or are you going to gravitate to service? And there are times where churches feel like they have to almost choose one over the other or at least elevate one above the other. And when it comes to the early church being a healthy early church, they never chose between the two. In verse 7, growth is happening in the church. And the reason growth happens in the church, it's not because they got service down. It's not because they learned to serve better. It's not because they're feeding a bunch of hungry bellies. The reason that the church is growing is because evangelistic fervor didn't shrink a bit. They remained evangelistic even as they had hearts that served. 
So we're in the middle right now as a church of a prayer campaign in the month of May where we're going before God, walking through the eight core values in our church and we're offering up thanks to God and intercession to God to connect us in a way where we elevate being people who are deep in God and deep in the word and deep in prayer and we're also being reminded of how our eyes need to be open to serve the way God wants us to serve. So as you think about what Acts 6 does for your life, I think Acts 6 has something to say about priorities. And maybe there's something in Acts 6 that needs to speak to you about priorities in your own life. Because you can identify problems in your life right now. And whatever plans you come up with to deal with the problems in your life, you need to be dreaming and thinking with God of how those plans need to come to be. And then how do we submit it and surrender it and immerse it in prayer that the will of God will be done in our lives? There are problems, there needs to be plans that come together through God and there's prayer. And whenever I have the chance to disciple people and to teach people and to just talk people about spirituality and priorities come up, I don't ever teach or talk about priorities where God is the first priority and then there's family and then there's work life or however else you want to do it. God is the ultimate priority Priority. I want people to think through priorities, and then you need to think how God enters into every priority of your life. God doesn't care to be a priority in your life. He wants to be the ultimate priority who's over all of them and in all of them. So maybe there's something to say here about priorities in your life. But let me end by going at it a different way too, all right? Uh, on the screen, here's an image of something I've spent a lot of my life in. I mean, if I were to calculate the hours and years I've spent in a desk like this, I mean, I'm talking about years of my life. I did 20 years of school, if you add up K through 12, undergrad, grad, and most of those years, and there were some college classes where we were at tables or we were sitting differently, but most classrooms I've been in were in desks that looked like this. It was a desk like this that, that I learned math and English and social studies. It's a desk like this that I, I practiced flirting and, and engaged in friendships with people around me. And I got in a lot of trouble, especially middle school and early on in high school. Desks that looked just like this. But it wasn't until later on in life that I had a couple of friends who were left-handed who told me how challenging it was to sit in desks like this. How many of you are left-handed and you know what I'm talking about? Because when you walk into classrooms, and I know a lot of classrooms don't have desks that are like this anymore. But you walk into classrooms, you don't have like right-handed desks and left-handed desks, or they don't ask you before school starts, are you right-handed or left-handed, so we can have a desk that fits you. And for all of my life, like it just fit me. I'm right-handed, so I never thought about it until friends talked about it. I mean, it wasn't a, a challenge to their education. They were still able to learn, but they had to adapt whenever they sat in one of these desks. The reality of my life is this. I mean, I'm a guy who has lived my entire life in Texas and Tennessee. I'm a guy who grew up in what I would consider to be a very healthy family, two-parent household, middle class. I have an undergraduate degree, a graduate degree. I don't know what it's like to be single in my adult life, engaged at the age of 20, married at the age of 21. I have two kids. I'm a Cowboys fan, which means I've been going through the wilderness now for 40 years. Like, these are, just, these are just experiences of my life. And there is a way I could try to go through life where to engage with people is I want them to fit into whatever desk I'm in in my life, and then we can connect. But what has helped me 
to understand the journey of people of color, black friends, Latinos, Asian Americans, is I've got to be willing to get out of whatever space I'm in and try to step into their space. I've never been, I mean, I know what it's like to, to be poor as a person who is married for the first year and I didn't, Casey and I didn't have much, but I don't know generational poverty, but having to step into the lives of the poor to understand challenges of generational poverty, of having to sit with singles, having to sit with people who've gone through miscarriages and hear their experience has helped me to understand and to grow empathy for them. So I think one question that Acts chapter six asks all of us as individuals and the church is who are those groups of people in your life or who are those groups in the, of people in the church who may be neglected, who are in need of people to raise an issue, to address it in a godly way so that people are valued. So here are three statements I would like to lead us out of this place into our week and also lead us in our time around the table. And here, here's, here they are. God, will you grow my heart to understand others? Not just wanting people to adapt to my life experiences. Grow me to understand others. Grow our hearts for the word and service. Circling the word and. For the word of God and for service. And grow us creatively as we plan and delegate. Right, for the mission of God. So, will you just hold, I don't, I don't want you to take the bread and the cup yet but will you just hold it in your hand for a moment? If you're at home right now, if you have the elements close to you, will you just hold them? If not, just sit in this, sit in this moment with us for a few minutes. And as you hold it, I want you to think about how willing Jesus was to leave his place, to understand humanity, to walk with humanity. This meal, every Sunday, reminds us of incarnation, of the one who lived among us, of the one whose body went all the way to the cross, who shed blood to launch a church to be his mission in the world. And may this meal today do something to our hearts to reprioritize our lives with God, and may this meal do something to our eyes to open them up to see other people the way God wants us to see people. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. God, for all you have done in and through Jesus, we give you thanks. And pray, God, if I spoke just any truth of your character, your nature, may those words sink deep into our hearts, even mess with us a little bit this week, and may they bear great fruit. And if I've spoken anything that doesn't honor who you are, may it fall to the ground, be trampled by you, not be remembered at all. And in this moment, God, will you open up our hands, our hearts, and our minds to hear from you. Speak to us, God. We come into this moment with grateful hearts. For all you have done, in the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.